0: Well, the bad news this morning is, is, is we're going to be walking through, preaching through together a whole book of one of the prophets. You're already thinking Isaiah, right? Oh, that's why they put lunch over there. <laughs> no. We're going to be walking through a whole book, but the good news is it's a short book, two chapters, okay? And, but it's as short as it is, it's not necessarily the easiest to follow because like everything else... There's some background, and I put a little bit of that on your, on your notes there, the bulletin insert, just because that background has been written down for us, the, the situation that plays out in the book of Haggai in these series of four or five short messages that come from God through Haggai to the leaders and the people. It it makes more sense, it fills out, all of a sudden it becomes alive and real to us when we understand the historical context in which it is happening. So we get that out of Ezra, and if you were to go through and read Ezra, you would get this history that happens, most, most of it, just prior to the book of Haggai. So in 538, after almost 70 years of captivity... The, the Israelites are allowed to return from Babylon to Jerusalem under a mandate given by King Cyrus after he has taken over Babylon. Cyrus the Mede says that the Israelites can go home. They have actually in archaeology, they found the Cyrus Cylinder, which has this in multiple languages, this decree of his for these people to go home and to rebuild their temple so that there they can pray for him. 538 B.C. That's Ezra chapter 1 and 2. Ezra chapter 3, the first half, has them arriving. And they, they worship. They, ha- they celebrate the fall feast of Israel together. But not only that, they form a building committee. They order cedar from Lebanon. Things are starting. They're on a roll. The second half of chapter 3, the foundation is laid. They see the footprint of the building. This is an exciting time. And yet, not for everybody There is great rejoicing at this step. They have broken ground. The foundation is there. They can see the layout of it. There's going to be a temple here. But those that are older, they they realize this is not going to be like it was. The glory of this temple is not going to be like the temple that we lost because of our guilt and our wandering away from the Lord our God. And so there's sorrow mixed in with the rejoicing. Now, those, all that rejoicing and sorrowing, that's overheard by the people around them. And the word has gotten out what the Israelites are doing and in Ezra chapter four, the first five verses, and then it's summarized at the end of the chapter, are basically the, the, uh, the people of the land. They come along and well, maybe they're going to help, but when they can't help, then they oppose, and they cause problems, and then those kind of things also happen later. That's most of Ezra 4, describes later opposition to the, the following generations. This same kind of thing keeps happening, and it happened in their day, and that discouragement causes them to stop building. Until 520 B.C. in Ezra chapter 5 and 6, and we're introduced to the prophet Haggai, as well as Zechariah, whom the Lord raises up to stir up his people and to to stir them up again to the work that he has called them to, that he's given them and they only the privilege of. It's not happening without them, and it's not been happening, and he stirs them up again to this work that God has given them after this 16-year delay. So that's how we get to Haggai and chapter 1. It's been 17 years since they started. They had arrived with that clear understanding. God had moved heaven and earth. God had moved Cyrus to send them and give them the legal right. They had building permits in hand from the king himself. And that had been specifically prophesied by Isaiah. They get their families settled in in Ezra Ezra chapter 3. They maybe get some crops in the ground. And then then there with the the fall feasts and the worship, they, they gather together and they form their building committee. They order some materials. They put out the order for beautiful cedar from Lebanon, just like Solomon had used in the first temple. In their second year there, they've laid those foundation stones. There's joy and there's sorrow. They had God's Word on this. They had God's Word from Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44 and verse 28. Now, understand, Isaiah is written about 200 years or so before this happens. So Isaiah is well ahead of time when Isaiah, or the Lord says through Isaiah speaking of his sovereignty i am the lord who made all things verse 24 who frustrates the liars who confirms the word of his servant verse 27 who says to the deep be dry like he did with the red sea who in verse 28 who says i am the lord who says of cyrus he is my shepherd and he will fulfill all my purpose saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. It continues into into chapter 45 then. Thus says the Lord to his anointed one. It's the same word for Messiah. Thus says the Lord to his anointed one, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings. Jumping down to verse 3. That you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. Cyrus, I want you to know I'm naming you ahead of time because I want you to know that for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. Cyrus is not a believer in the one true God. Cyrus actually sends several different peoples back to their lands to build their temples to pray for him. Cyrus is not taking any, 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 any chances. This is like the Acts 17 of the Old Testament where there's a temple there. There's an altar to the unknown God. Cyrus wants everybody to pray for him. And so, he sends this people back to pray to the one true God. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, so that, for this purpose, that the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, there is no other. God has picked Cyrus out Way ahead of time. They have a word from God. I mean, he's named Cyrus. Cyrus hasn't even been born yet. Cyrus doesn't even have vocal cords yet. And already God knows him. And God names him. They are clear that they can go forward here because God has sent them. Just And it's played out just as God said it would. But they also get the neighbor's attention. As in Ezra chapter 4, these neighboring Samaritans, they come along and say, hey, what you building there? Can we help? And they say, no. Sorry, but you can't help. God has called us to rebuild his temple. And they explain to them that, that no, they can't do that, that this is for us to do. And Having turned down their help, the neighbors then turn up the trouble. There's intimidation, there's letter writing, there's bribery. They, they make things difficult. Oh, let's see if you can pass inspections. Let's see if you'll get your permitting. Between opposition, the discouragement around them, and their own distractions of other things they could be doing, the building project stalls, and nothing more is done for about the next 16 years they tell themselves with all of this trouble and all the other things that we need to be doing, it, it's not the right time to build. Now with that background, enter Haggai with this series of messages, short messages over about a four-month period. We'll begin with Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, 520 B.C., in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time is not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag or a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood. Build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house lies in ruins while each of of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew. The earth has withheld its produce. I have called for a drought on the land, the hills, the grain, the new wine, and the oil on the ground that brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. God has withheld the fruitfulness, the blessing of productivity. The first message, consider your ways, is basically this. What are you guys doing? Or maybe it should be, what are you not doing? What are you neglecting? What have you been thinking? What are you missing? Consider your ways. You say it's not time to build, and yet you build. You build your own houses. And by the way, that's some very nice Lebanese cedar paneling you've got there in the dining room. Where did they get that? Why did they have to go back and get more wood from the hills? Because the wood they'd ordered for the temple. Well, it's not time to build the temple. We can't just let this stuff go to waste. And it went other places instead, apparently. You've gotten discouraged from my purposes, the Lord said, and you've got distracted by other things, and you've forgotten what you're here for. I brought you here for a reason. I gave you a divine purpose. Going your own way, focusing on your own priorities. He said, how is that working for you? Are you finding satisfaction there? Are you really getting fulfillment there? Is it turning out the way that you wanted? Does it feel like something is missing? Every day feels like something is missing. They sow much, they reap little. They, they eat, but they never quite have enough. God is providing for them, but he's letting them know that something is missing. Why? Why? Because my house lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. So I have called a drought. Now, now, let me give you an Old Testament key. Anytime you see drought or famine, a lack of productivity, pestilence, or Isra- affecting Israel, or Israel being oppressed, defeated by their surrounding enemies, whenever you see that, think Deuteronomy 28. It's a covenantal aspect that God said when they walk with him in his ways, he will go before them. It'll be a land of milk and honey. It'll be fruitful and prosperous, and the water that they depend on will come down from the heavens and water the ground, and it'll bear fruit and blossom and bloom. But if they don't, he'll withhold the rain. It's one of the first ways that he seeks to get his people's attention. So when you see that in the Old Testament, when you see that here in Haggai, I think, ooh, there's a covenant thing going on here. God is trying to get their attention because they're not continuing in the way that he has called them. They're experiencing again what his people had experienced before the exile, which ended up culminating in exile itself. We don't want to go there again. God is reminding them, even as he provides for them. So, Now, that helps you with the Old Testament, but be careful how you apply that. Sometimes we will take that Old Testament principle and we will say, well, that must be what's happening with me. Bad things have happened in my life. And when bad things happen, it must be because God is punishing me for something I did. If everything isn't wonderful and sweet and prosperous and and I'm, I'm experiencing the blessings, it must be because God is displeased with me. I've got a Deuteronomy 28 that concerns Israel's enemies and drought and famine in the land. That God gave to those people. I don't have a place I can go in scripture that says somebody in your family got a cancer diagnosis because you have not been walking with the Lord. Be careful how you jump to conclusions. It's interesting. James says, if anyone's sick, call for the elders and let them pray. And he also says, if you have, if you have sinned, it will be forgiven you. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Those two come real close together for James. Why? Because when we feel our weakness, we're reminded of our spiritual weakness. When we feel our physical weakness, it's a good time to look at our soul. But it doesn't mean that that's why you're sick. But God might use the sick, which is, as much as anything, a result of the curse. Blame it on Adam. We are broken people in a broken world in desperate need of our Savior. So let that Deuteronomy 28 principle help you understand the Old Testament, that we can learn from these things. But don't assume that if things are well, God must be so pleased with you. And if, things, if you're having trouble, if you're experiencing some of the aspects of this broken, fallen world because of sin, and, and even other people's sin, or just the brokenness and weakness of humanity and our flesh, and you're experiencing that, don't assume it's because God is displeased with you, or with somebody else that it's happening to. God has answered our, the need of our sin and our brokenness, and He places it on Jesus, our Savior. Now, as a result of this confrontation, this intervention by God, the people hear the word of the Lord, and they respond. They obey his word through his prophet. They show up at the temple site, and they again give themselves to this work that God has given them. Look at chapter chapter 1, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord their God. You know, this is one of the few times in Scripture where you have the prophetic call, you have the, the confrontational correction through God's messenger, and you see the people respond. And do exactly what they should. It's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And it's tucked away here in the little book of Haggai. They hear God and they fear God. And they follow God. And they they give themselves again to His will. And it tells us something. When obstacles come, it might mean time to wait. Or it might mean it's time to be steadfast and immovable in the work of the Lord. Trouble always doesn't always mean stop. A little obstacle, we could expect opposition to come. We can expect trouble to come. Even as they're going to experience it. They've rolled up their sleeves again. They've, they've jumped into the work. And trouble comes. And Ezra chapter 5 tells us that when they start again, when Haggai comes and stirs up the people and they start again, the neighbors notice. And they're not coming along this time and say, how can we help? They're coming along to saying, hey, what do you think you're doing? Who said you could do this? Who said you could build this? Where's your pyramid? Show me. And they searched through the files. They didn't have a copy. Well, 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 and they say, they say, who gave you permission that you can build this? And their answer, well, the God of heaven told us to rebuild his house. And they they go on with the story. And as Ezra 5, they say, our forefathers, they messed up real bad. They didn't follow our God. They didn't obey his word. And so Babylon came and took down our city and God's temple and took us away. But now King Cyrus of Babylon gave us a permit and a mandate. He told us to come back and to rebuild God's house, that here we would pray for him. God and Cyrus. Cyrus isn't around anymore. Cyrus is gone. Cyrus's son is gone. There's another king now, a guy named Darius. Not the same Darius of Daniel, by the way. The God and Cyrus, as far as they know, as they smirk to themselves, we'll see about that. As far as they care, as far as they believe, God and Cyrus are both no more. They're not around anymore. So the letter writing commences again. The lawyers draft a letter to the king saying, come on, really? You, do you know what these people are doing? They can't be serious. Did Cyrus ever issue such a decree? Did that really even ever happen? Is there any record of that? And they hope that there isn't. They hope that maybe the scribes won't look hard enough to find it. Maybe the current king won't really care because he's not descended from Cyrus at all. Do these Israelites really have royal standing to build? (laughs) More than they know. One more aside here. The opponents are not against the temple building until they realize that it's exclusive. First, they want to jump in. Oh, good, a building party. Let's join in. We could make this the first universal temple of the land beyond the river. This is going to be wonderful. No, no, no. This is not a universal temple for all peoples and all gods. This is the temple of the true and living God, that God has caused his people, whom he chose out of all the peoples to build, so that his name can be known to all peoples everywhere. God has given us this to do. And when they find, oh, this is exclusive, this is a a God who defines people on his terms, not on our terms. When people realize that your version of faith, if they think, let me start here, If if they think that your version of faith allows people to worship God as they choose to define how God must be, they'll be fine with you. That's not threatening. But if your version of faith is one where you dare to say that God himself defines the way that we come to him, that God is God, that we are not, you can expect opposition. If you insist that there's no other name given under heaven, under men by which we must be saved, you're going to get opposition. If you dare to insist that Jesus himself said that he is the way, the truth, the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him, you can expect some pushback. If you dare to say that our guilt and our need is defined by God's Word and not our own feelings, you can expect trouble. You'll need to know, like Haggai's friends here needed to know, that God, the Lord of hosts, the one final authority is with you. Now, in our Monday study, one of the younger guys in the group said, I, I, I keep hearing this Lord of Hosts come up. And it comes up 12 times in these two short chapters. So yeah, that's a name that keeps popping up. He said, why is that? What does that mean? Well, it's interesting. Lord of Hosts is the Lord, the Sovereign, the Master of the Host of Heaven. Think, it of, think of it as God as the warrior king of the angelic armies. The Ancient of Days, who rules everything. That's who's in view here. The Lord of hosts who rules and comes with the armies of heaven, so you need not fear any armies of men. And it's interesting, in the post-exil, I'm going to teach you a word today. Some of you, it'll be a new word. You can share this with other people. and They'll say, ooh, you know something about the Bible. They'll say, What? Post-exilic. Now what that simply means is post-exile, these last three prophets in the Old Testament come after the Babylonian exile. So post-exilic, now what's, what, the reason I, t- I told you that to tell you this, that a one-third of the uses of this name, Lord of Hosts, occur in these three very short post-exilic prophets. It's not a late name. David used this name a lot. This name occurs from 1 Samuel forward. It occurs in a lot of the Psalms. It's a common name of God, 240 plus times in the Bible. But a third of them occur in these short books. Why? Because gathered back, a small remnant with no power of their own, these are people that needed to know that the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. That the warrior king who commands the angels, armies of heavens, he is on our side. They had no strength of their own. They needed to be reminded that their God was strong on their behalf. Now, in that time... As they're reminded of that that, 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 that God is with them. What God is telling them there, in the midst of the opposition, in the midst of those around them who have noticed they've started building again, that brought them trouble before, it's bringing them trouble again. Be, in the midst of that, God sends again Haggai with this message, I am with you. And It's basically this, don't stop again. Don't get discouraged again. Don't let them intimidate you like they were able to do before and everything grinds to a halt. You keep going because God is with you. That's what he's telling them. Sometimes the going will get tough, but you keep going because God is with you. They are asking, who said you could do this? And the answer from heaven is, I am with you. I'm the one who said you could do this. When God gives you something to do, and you give yourself to his well, his priorities, his purposes, don't expect smooth sailing. It isn't necessarily going to be easy. When you give yourself to God's purposes, expect pushback. But know this. He says, I am the Lord of hosts. I will never leave you nor forsake you. All authority has been given to Jesus uh, in heaven and on earth. And Therefore, he says, go to others around you. Bring them into God's family, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to do all things that I've commanded you. Building up one another to know and to follow Jesus. These are the things He commands us to do and we can do these things because He has all authority. And He is the one who has sent us. Jesus Himself has said, I am with you all the way to the end of the age, and we're not there yet. It may seem like we're close at times. It may seem that that end of the age is near. But that's all the more reason to keep going, because the Lord of hosts is with us. He's got us. Now, maybe a month or so after that comes message number three, and it's the start of of Haggai chapter 2. It's now the 21st day of the seventh month. This is roughly seven weeks from the first message, or three and a half weeks or so from the second message. The opposition has been gearing up in their anti temple campaign. There hasn't yet been word. They have sent the letter off challenging this whole thing, but they haven't got an answer back from Persia. They haven't got an answer back from Darius. And because this is not the same Darius as Israel knew before through Daniel, they don't know how this Darius is going to respond. This Darius is not related to Cyrus. They don't know how this is going to come out. They could easily be getting discouraged. It's going, to take a lot of, it's going to take a few months for that word to come back. The time of travel between there and there. The word to go out into the archives in various cities to look for this decree. Does it really exist? So while they're waiting, while they're wondering how on the political plane is this going to play out, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Verse 2 of chapter 2. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, God speaks to leaders and to the people. I tell them this. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing before your eyes? Well, we weren't told that they got that kind of discouragement here. That that happened when they first laid the foundation stones and the first wave of opposition came. But God heard it then, and God knows years later it still echoes around within their hearts. We lost something then that can never be regained. God sent us back. God's going to build a temple again. We're going to have a temple again, but it's not going to be like it was before. Because of our sin in the past, because of our guilt of what has gone before, we can have a temple, but it's not going to be quite the same. It's not going to be what it could have been because of us, because of what we've done. Do you ever think like that? Do you ever think that, yes, I'm forgiven, I know I'm saved. I'm going to go to heaven, but I'm not sure God really wants me there. He's just doing that because he said he would. Maybe God has forgiven me technically, but I have disqualified myself. I have defiled myself, and there's things that I'm not going to be able to do. It's never going to be what it could have been because of what I did. Do you ever think like that? I suspect at times we all do, and it's not true. Stop it. Stop it. The Scripture says the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from most, no, all unrighteousness. That's exactly what it says. That He took all of my guilt upon Himself on the cross... And he gave me his rightness that I might, he might give to us the very righteousness of Christ. He takes our guilt, he gives us his own right standing with God. Nobody gets into God's presence barely. You get into God's presence with the abundant right of Jesus himself to be there. That's what he has done for you. That's how he has cleansed us from our guilt. And God's word to them here is, Oh, keep going. Don't don't get discouraged. Be strong and courageous, O Joshua high priest. Be strong, all you people, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. According to the covenant that I made with you, even when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your, in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so the treasures of all nations shall come in. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace. This message speaks to the sovereignty of God and the value of the work. God says, I've got this. You may be discouraged. It may not look like much to you. In fact, the thing that you do, this is your service to the Lord, yet that little part that you do that nobody else seems to notice, you wonder if it matters or not. You wonder if it makes any difference in the whole bigger scheme of things. Does my little contribution Because I don't think I can do much. Does that really matter in the scope of eternity? And God himself says, yes. Yes, it does. This might look like little to you, but the the glory of this house is going to be even greater than the glory of the former temple of Solomon. As they look at that foundation blueprint, they're asking the question you're asking, how can that be? It's not as big. And we don't have the same level of building materials as some of what we had. We already used up on ourselves. How can this temple be anything like what we lost? Well, it's not about the structure. Maybe, maybe it is. Herod's going to come along later. And this guy named King Herod, he's going to build this fan. He's going to do this remodel and expansion that's going to make the, the temple one of the, one of the wonders of that age. Is that what God's talking about here? No, no, no. You're going to build the, the framework, but then Herod's going to come later, and he's going to make it grand. Don't you worry. I'll finish it. I don't think that's what he's talking about at all, because Jesus himself was not terribly impressed with Herod's temple. Jesus told his disciples, don't get all worked up about the building. There's going to come a time when not one of these stones is going to stay on top of another. Don't get worked up about the building, Jesus said. no. But the glory of that temple, the glory of the temple that they would build, that second temple that Herod does expand and remodel, the ultimate glory of that temple would be even greater. How? Well, when Solomon prayed and dedicated the temple, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, that presence of God in a cloud-like pillar, just as had descended upon the tabernacle, it descended upon that temple. And they knew that the presence of God was there because they could see this fiery pillar. And that was exciting. We don't have any record of anything like that happening with the second temple. We don't have any record of the glory of God arriving and coming to the second temple until Jesus himself arrives. And the glory of God in the person of Christ, the incarnate God himself in person shows up. God translated in humanity shows up and walks into that temple and turns everything upside down. Oh my goodness. Nothing like that had ever happened before. God himself showed up at that temple. They had no idea that which they built how God was going to use it, and neither do you. Some of you work with kids. You parent kids. You teach kids. You care for kids in the nursery or the pre-K. Teaching them in Sunday school, helping them, mentoring them in Awana. You wonder, does it really make any difference? And years will go by, and you won't really see any real transformation. Sometimes it's years and years later, a decade later, maybe two, and then you see the fruit of those seeds of faith that were planted into tender soil. Children's ministry is a sacrifice because you wait so long to see the fruit of it, but keep going, keep building. That which God calls you to do, he does not call you to do for nothing No, he says, in fact, Paul reminded the Corinthian church, in fact, uh, in light of the future resurrection, in light of the eternity where we will be with the Lord in glory, in light of this, beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, unwavering, giving yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that your labors in the Lord are not for nothing. They are not in vain in the Lord. The Lord reminds his people that he is the one who owns the future. Don't worry about the present difficulties. You don't seem to have enough silver. You don't seem to have enough gold. The silver's mine. The gold is mine. I've got this. God says to them, once more, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. You know what he's saying there in our colloquial? God is going to move heaven and earth to finish what he has started. He's going to do it, whether it looks like like it in today's headlines or not. You don't worry about that. You push that aside and you keep going with what God has given you to do according to his word and led by his spirit. And he will do it. God is going to move heaven and earth. Are these these just religious platitudes to give hope in the midst midst of real-world obstacles while they wait for the political answer, while they wait to see how the next election will turn out? Not long after this, word comes back from King Darius. Well, the Lord already knew this was going to happen because he's running this show. The word comes back from King Darius in Ezra 6. In Ezra 6, it says where where Darius the king says to the opposition, he answers their question. Can these guys really do that? Did anybody ever really tell them to build? Darius says, Leave them alone and let them build. In fact, if they lack anything, you give them whatever they need. If they have any trouble from you, you're going to answer to me. That's a pretty strong endorsement. You know, we pray for permitting. We pray that the Lord would direct government functions, that he would even guide us through there, or if we have to negotiate and make appeals and, and try again and try this way or that way, we pray that the Lord himself will work in our behalf and give us favor. Is that just adding religion to the practicalities of life? Or is it true what Proverbs says, that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord? And like rivers of water, he turns it whichsoever way he will. Are the kings of this world in charge, or is the Lord of hosts the one who's in charge? That'll direct a lot of what we do. Who's really in charge of what's going on, and who will I then give my allegiance and devotion to? What did God say? I am with you. That's not empty words, if he really is. A couple months later, there's one more word from the Lord. and This one's a little bit different. They have gotten over the obstacles of the day, the discouragement of the day, and now the danger is on the other side. Just like sometimes we can be thinking, it'll never be what it could have been because of the things I did. Sometimes we think when things are going well, God must be so very pleased with me. Look at all the things that I can do now. Wow, if I accomplish this for God, if I do that, if I give this, God is going to be so pleased with me. He's going to pour out abundant blessing. In fact, see how well life is going? God must be so pleased with me. Mm. I'm not sure that's the way it is. Look at verse 10. Now, what God does here is he gives them a little priestly parable. Now, if you don't understand the context and the flow of what's going on, this parable comes out of nowhere. It's like, what's going on here? So, I'm, I'm probably going to shortcut it a little bit just because of time, because that lunch really wasn't for the message. That's for, that's for those that are able to stay for the business meeting but need some calories in them because the message went too long. So, I, I, I want try to, try, try to try to pull this together, but I want us to understand this because this is one of the, I think for us today, one of the most important messages in this little book. On the 24th day of the ninth month. Now, this is almost four months now from from their restarting. In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts Ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat into the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, No. And you answered and said, Who cares? This is Leviticus. We don't do any of this anymore. Why do we still bother to read the Old Testament, especially chapter and chapter about sacrifices? Well, We don't do those sacrifices, but there's something there that we learn about God, and He uses those sacrifices to pull out a principle. So stay with me. The idea here is a sacrifice that is made holy in its offering to God. It cannot transfer its holiness to other common objects. When that that meat that was sacrificed and made holy was devoted to the Lord, when that touches something else, it doesn't make that other thing holy as well. It doesn't transfer. Okay, then Haggai said in verse 13, if someone who is unclean by contact with the dead body, this is ceremonial, this is not moral, this is not ethical, you didn't, it's, it's not somebody who did something bad and they're now unclean. This is somebody who just, because they have contact with the dead body, they, they now are unclean, need to go through a purification process. While they're unclean, while that person is unclean, if he touches any of these objects, does the object become unclean? And the priest, well, that's, that's, that's not a difficult one, actually. If you, if, if you know the law, the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Now oh, Haggai answered, so it is with this people, and so it is with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And then he goes on, and he says, so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. You say, oh, oh wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're not doing just any old stuff. They're not doing a, they're building God's temple. Look what they're doing for God. How can you say every work of their hands is unclean? How can that be? The problem's not with the work, the problem's with them. The problem's not with our work, the problem's with us. We think that when we do a good work, that makes us good. The temple's good. The temple's holy. So when I'm building the temple, that means I'm good and I'm holy and God must be so pleased with me because I'm doing the right things. Nope. That's not it. I'm a mess. If you only knew. Yet... I, in building the temple, I would defile the temple. The cleanness of the temple doesn't transfer to me, but my uncleanness would defile that which is pure. There's nothing good that I can ultimately bring to God because anything I bring to God is touched by me. And that ruins it. Except for His grace. He says, in fact, look at your own experience. Your own experience tells you, you were messing up and the famine came and that's Deuteronomy 28 and the record's there. You know this, you get this. He said, and yet, and yet even when you started building, the crop situation hadn't really changed yet. And yet you learned what it says in Habakkuk, that though there the cattle are not in the stall, though there be no fruit on the vine, yet I will trust the Lord and you have continued with me. And the Lord says, you know what? From this day, I will bless you. Not because your work has made you clean. That which you and I do for the Lord, that which you and I give for the Lord, never gains a status with him. That doesn't mean he doesn't care. He seems to care a lot. He gets their attention here. But it's not a a matter of, look at the stature that I'm earning with God. It's more like a child has the privilege and opportunity to bring joy to their parent in ways that nobody else can. And that's what you have on God. You have the ability as his own precious chosen child. You have the ability by hearing him, by trusting him, by bending your will to his, you have the ability to delight His heart or to bring him to tears. That's how it works with us. It's not that what we do earns standing and credit because we would mess that up and we would defile it. And anything that I do, any, well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is trying to bring the Corinthians back down to earth. They've got a very high opinion of themselves. And one of the things he says, he says, What do you have that you did not receive? Even your vocal cords. Everything you've got, he knit me together in my mother's wombs, whether it's physical skill, whether it's these good looks, whether whether it's this wonderful thin head of hair, what, whatever it is, what do I have that I did not receive? My skills, my abilities, the giftings, anything that we have to contribute, we got from him. You know, any reward that you and I receive will be of God's grace, because anything we've done has been tainted by us, but God is the one who makes it something. Look what I will do through you. You have no idea the difference this is going to make. That's why some churches, when they're in a building program, you know what they do? They have bricks. And as you contribute to the building program, you get a brick with your name on it. And that sound like a good idea? We didn't do that. What a marketing opportunity. Maybe we could use these stones. We could put bricks' name, Sharpie, your name on the on each of those bricks as you're participating in the building of this building. You know what we'd have to do? We'd simply end up putting Jesus' name on every brick. Because he's the one who has done it through us. There's nothing that I can do apart from his grace in me that could matter for anything. But look what God chooses to do through you. Oh, that's worth giving myself for. We will consider our ways then. What in the world are we doing? God's things are our things. We can go all in. We need not fear because God himself was with us no matter what those around us might say. We are encouraged to keep going whatever it is that God has given you to do because God himself says that what you do will do more than you think. You don't know how far this will go. You don't know where those ripples will carry when you simply say, God, I will trust you. I will do this. God does not overlook, God does not take lightly the sacrifice of your worship. God will not allow your labor or your loss to be for nothing. But don't mistake your sacrifice for Christ's sacrifice. He's the one that makes it worthy. He's the one who makes it glorious. Nothing that we do in serving our God makes us worthy of His grace toward us. Rather, it is His grace through us, and to us that makes anything that we do in His name worthwhile. And therefore we will say, we will pray together, Lord, would you take us? Would you make us? Because you have chosen us. Lord, of ourselves, we cannot make ourselves into much. But Lord, we We want to see what you will do through us. Yielded to you for your will, for your purpose. Serving in ways that may seem small. Serving in in places that are far away. And, oh Lord, it seems like very little promise of fruit on a human level. And yet, Lord, we do not desire to work on a human level. We desire to work by the power of, By the grace of the Lord of hosts who is with us. So Lord, would you in fact use us to proclaim your name. That indeed peoples will praise you for who you are and what you have done. Lord, use us and we don't even care to see the outcome ourselves. Use us in ways that will ripple into the lives of others, and whether we know it or not, we will trust you for it. Because you are not unjust to forget the work or the labor of love that your people will give and do give in your name. We thank you for that, Lord. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.